Welcome back to our study on the kingdom of God. Uh, we are currently uh, looking at some of the parables that Jesus told concerning the kingdom. Uh, we've done a couple of weeks looking at the parables, and I think tonight will probably be our last one. But uh, remember that as we're doing this, we are studying uh, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God uh, in contrast to uh, the common kingdom of this world in which all men uh, reside and are a part of. We're talking specifically about that kingdom uh, which is comprised of the elect, both elect men and angels who are part of God's eternal kingdom of redemption. And so we're looking at how Jesus, what Jesus taught about the kingdom by means of parable. And we said that a parable is a short story that is drawn from real-life experiences that people can understand and relate to. And we've seen that. He's used uh, stories about farming, uh, stories about herbs growing in the garden, things that people are familiar with and that they can understand. And, and he does that in order to teach or to illustrate a, a spiritual truth. And so uh, we did say that the primarily the parables will have one primary meaning. Uh, they won't be filled with all sorts of intricate little meanings the way a more involved allegory might be. Although some of the parables are allegories, uh, many of them are similes, which is where Christ simply says the kingdom of heaven is like and then gives us this comparison. And so in the past, I shared a quote from R.C. Sproul about how the, the parables just have one primary purpose generally, but I found another quote uh, this week as I was studying. This one's from John Calvin, speaking specifically about one of the parables we'll look at tonight, but I think it can be applied to almost all of them. And he says, if any man should resolve to sift out with exactness every portion of this parable, his curiosity would be useless. In other words, the parable's not meant to be read that way, to look for exact uh, meanings and in all these little details, there's one point to the parable. So as we began the last couple of weeks to look at the parables, we turned to Matthew chapter 13, which contained eight parables uh, in which Jesus spoke about the kingdom. Uh, there were four parables that he spoke to the multitudes and then four that he spoke to his disciples. And what we learned from those parables was that the kingdom of heaven has come Right? It's not off in the distant future somewhere. It has come, but it has come in a way that was unexpected. It wasn't uh, the grand, eschatological, majestic, triumphant kingdom uh, in which the Messiah would come and establish his throne on earth and rule over the nations. That was what they expected. And we saw that it will grow into that, but it actually came in an unexpected way. It comes in the hearts of individuals and then grows over time. And we also saw that even though the kingdom didn't come as they had expected it to, that Christ taught them the immense value of the kingdom and of finding your way into the kingdom. Uh, and so they were to value it even though it had not appeared in the manner in which they thought that it would. So this evening we're just going to continue through uh, Matthew's gospel with some of the parables uh, that Jesus uses to teach 
about the kingdom. And so let's turn all the way over to Matthew 18. He doesn't really use any parables between chapter 13 and 18 uh, regarding the kingdom. Uh, There are a few of his teachings where he uses some parable type stories, but we're going to turn to toward the end of chapter 18 uh, and look at this parable of the unforgiving servant that Jesus tells. And so we'll begin in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, we need to understand that the Pharisees in in this time taught that you should forgive somebody three times. And if he uh, continued to persist in the sin for a fourth time, you were no longer obligated to forgive him. So Peter is being generous here. Should I forgive him seven times? More than the Pharisees even? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, and so he begins a parable in this form of a simile that we've looked at in the past. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now that's a a longer parable. Some of the ones we looked at last week were just one verse long. Uh, This is a much longer one. It's a more involved story, uh, and it's an interesting story. We have a a king uh, or a ruler who uh, has some of his servants, some of his subjects who owe him various amounts, and so he calls one of them in to settle the account, and the guy owes him 10,000 talents. Now, trying to wrap our mind around what that means is a little difficult. We don't use talents and denarii. And many of the commentaries that I own are older ones from the time of the English Reformation. And so as they were calculating how much this amount would be, they were calculating it into pounds sterling, which still didn't do me a whole lot of good trying to figure out what it was. So I did do a little bit of research trying to look it up online and see what would this amount be equal to in today's dollars. And if you believe the research that I found online, it would be something along the lines of a trillion dollars. In other words, it's an astronomical amount that this man has no hope of ever paying back. He he can't pay it back. There's nothing he can do to settle this account. He is completely at the mercy of his master. And so he begs with the master 
for patience, saying that he'll work, he'll labor to try and pay it off, but he can't. There's no way he'll ever be able to do so. And so the master has compassion on him and just forgives him the debt. He, he just erases it. The servant doesn't owe him anything. He doesn't set up a payment plan. He doesn't reduce the debt. He just erases it. It's forgiven. But then this same servant goes out and finds another servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now we'll see in another parable that we will look at this evening that a denarii is about a day's wages. So it's a goodly amount. It's a, a third of your annual salary. But it's nothing compared to what this man owed to the master. Uh, and, but he has no patience for his fellow servant, and so he has him cast into the debtor's prison until he could pay what he's owed. And so we can, we can see right away, this guy is ungrateful. Uh, you know, he's not willing to extend mer- the same mercy to other people that was extended to himself. Uh, so not really uh, a good example uh, for us. Now, as we think about the application of this, which is all the way down in verse 35, Jesus said, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. And so we're not talking about financial debt. We're talking about offense uh, against one another and answer to Peter's question of how often he should forgive someone. But Christ is saying, uh, just like in this parable where this servant had this unimaginable debt forgiven, you have had an unimaginable debt forgiven as well. And so we might think of Psalm chapter 40, verse 12, that says, um, beginning in verse 11, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Our iniquities are innumerable. They're more than the hairs of our head. We can't number them. Uh, So we've been forgiven those iniquities by God in Christ. And so Jesus says we are to extend this same sort of forgiveness to others. And so if we think about what does this mean that all of our sins have been forgiven? Well, if we understand the biblical doctrine of sin and we talk about original sin when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that we all inherited the guilt of that sin from Adam. That guilt of original sin is wiped away in Christ. The the guilt of our actual sins that we commit in the flesh uh, is forgiven. The sins that we commit in open, the sins that we commit in secret, all forgiven. Uh, The sins that, that we commit by violating God's laws, the sins that we commit by omission, by not doing the things that we should, and those are sins. If we look back at the law that was given to to ancient Israel, there were sins that could be committed by simply not doing the things that you were supposed to do. There was even provision made for seeking forgiveness and atonement for sins you didn't even know you had committed. That's how many sins we commit, more than we can even be aware of. And all of them have been forgiven us in Christ. And so if we do not forgive others, then he says God will not forgive our sins. So what's the point of this parable? Well, 
if the kingdom of heaven is like this, remember what we said about a kingdom. The kingdom is the rule and the reign, the extent of the sovereignty of the king. So the kingdom would take on the characteristics of the king. And so we have a king who is generous and compassionate and forgiving, and he has made us citizens of this kingdom. And so if we do not emulate his compassion and his mercy and his forgiveness against someone who has sinned against us, which is a pittance compared to our sin against him, then we're not acting like we belong in this kingdom. We're not acting like citizens of this kingdom that is established on the character of the king. We're demonstrating that we don't understand the grace of God. We don't understand his forgiveness and that we don't know Christ ultimately is what it amounts to. So the one who is unwilling to forgive will not be forgiven because it's clear that he doesn't actually know the forgiveness of Christ. So Peter asks him, well, how often am I supposed to forgive? And the answer is all of it. If your sins have been forgiven in Christ, then you are to forgive every sin against you that your brother sins against you. Now, what is this telling us about the kingdom ultimately? Well, it's telling us that the kingdom not only comes in unexpected ways, but that citizenship in the kingdom, entrance into the kingdom, uh, is by grace alone. There's nothing this man could do to pay off this debt that he owed. There's no way he could earn enough to pay this debt. So the kingdom of heaven is like this. If our entrance into the kingdom is predicated upon our sins being paid for, then our entrance into the kingdom is dependent solely upon the grace of God in Christ Jesus to forgive our sins. There's nothing we can do to earn it on our own. It's also teaching us that the the ethics of the kingdom are different. They're distinct from the ethics of the common kingdom. If you'll remember, we talked about the common kingdom on earth that is governed by means of the Noahic covenant, and we talked about the justice of the common kingdom. Well, the justice of the common kingdom is retributive justice. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man will his blood be shed. But in the kingdom of heaven, the ethics are different. It's an ethic of forgiveness rather than retribution. Uh, So justice is still served, but Christ bears the, the full force of the wrath of God on our behalf so that we can experience the forgiveness uh, of God. So that's a, a fascinating parable that teaches us about the ethics and the character of the kingdom and begins to hint at uh, the means by which we enter the kingdom. And this will be a continued theme of uh, several of Christ's parables as we continue through the book of Matthew. So turn over to chapter 20 and we'll look at uh, another one. Here we have a parable of the workers in the vineyard. And so chapter 20 uh, begins with this parable. And, and it remember, the chapter's The chapter divisions weren't there originally, so this is really a continuation of the discussion at the end of chapter 19. But we're going to read the parable in chapter 20 and talk about it a minute and then go back and look at the discussion that led up to Christ telling this parable. So here's chapter 20 of the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard, 
and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. So we have this story here of a landowner who has a vineyard. And we know the importance of a vineyard uh, and in the economy of ancient Israel. Uh, And so he's growing grapes and apparently... When the grapes come ripe, and some of you may know this from raising fruit of various kinds, the particular berries uh, on your own property, that when they hit that moment where they're ripe, you've got to harvest them. And if you harvest them too soon, they're going to be sour. If you wait too long, they're either going to go bad or the birds and the other animals are going to eat them. Uh, in fact, I saw an article earlier this week of a festival of some kind. This was in England uh, celebrating some sort of fruit harvest. I don't remember what kind of berry it was. They actually had to cancel it. Uh, they had scheduled it uh, around the calendar dates because of the weekend or whatever and really kind of waited too long, ended up having to cancel it because the birds ate all the berries so they couldn't have their festival. Uh, so that's how important it is to harvest at exactly the right time. And so the grape harvest comes and the landowner has to go out and hire additional help other than his full-time laborers and so he goes to the Home Depot parking lot oh wait a minute that's our equivalent right he goes looking for day laborers and so he finds these these men who are waiting there to be hired to go to work and so he hires some of them now he goes out early in the morning it says and then it tells us he hires them and then that he goes back out again about the third hour the sixth hour the ninth hour and then finally at the eleventh hour and we're told near the end of the the parable Uh, that these last men have worked only one hour. So if he hired them at the 11th hour, that means we're looking at a 12-hour work day. So sun up to sundown, roughly, kind of thing. So he's gone out, he's hired men at the beginning of the day, and they've worked all day long. And then he went out, say it started at 6 a.m. Then he went out at 9 a.m. and hired more, at noon and hired more, at 3 p.m. and hired more, and finally he goes out at 5 p.m. and hires the last group of people and sends them out to work. And then when it comes time to pay them, he pays them all the same. And the ones who he hired first are upset uh, that they didn't get paid more. So that's the, the sum of the, the parable there. The workers who were left to the end of the day, let's just stop and think about this. If his grapes are ripe and ready to be harvested, probably other people's are too. So think about he's telling a parable from real life experience that they would be familiar with. And you got to be thinking, 
the guys that have been standing there all day long waiting to be hired and no one has hired them, there's probably a reason nobody hired them. They probably have a reputation for being bad workers. They didn't get the job. Nobody hired them. But here at the last hour, he hires them anyway and sends them out to work. Uh, and so there's several things that this parable teaches us. First of all, coming on the heels of the last parable we looked at, in the previous parable, uh, God was pictured as the, the master or the Lord to whom a debt was owed. Here we can see that at the end of this parable, he pays all these workers and he specifically tells them that it's lawful for him to do what he wants to with his own things. God is not in our debt. It doesn't matter how hard we think we've worked for him. He's not in our debt. We're in his debt, right? He is a debtor to no man. Uh, He owes us nothing. Whatever we get from him is of his grace. Uh, We can also see that Like I said, these guys who were hired at the 11th hour likely had a reputation for not being good workers, and yet they got paid the same as the people who had labored all day, which pictures for us God's extravagant grace to the least of those, uh, the least deserving of all people, which is us, right? It's by grace that all of these workers get paid the same wages, Whether they worked one hour, six hours, or 12, they all get paid the same. And so it's showing us that it is by grace that we all become citizens of the kingdom. And so I've got a quote from Calvin here commenting on this parable. He said, Christ does not here argue either about the equality of the heavenly glory. So he says Christ isn't making Uh, In this parable, we're not supposed to find an interpretation of this parable that says that when we get to heaven, certain people, that all people in heaven will have the same exact uh, reward, the same exact glory in heaven. That's not what the parable is about. It's not about the future condition of the godly. He only declares that those who were first in point of time have no right to boast or to insult others because the Lord, whenever he pleases, may call those whom he appeared for a time to disregard. So we can think about, uh, you know, ethnic Israel who were called under the Old Covenant and Gentiles were left out of the Old Covenant. But if God chooses to call the Gentiles whom he had previously disregarded and left out of covenant relationship and bring them into the covenant, the Jews can't complain that God has done this because he's God. He can do what he wants to with his creation. Um, Now, if we look at what precipitated Christ telling this parable, at the end of chapter 19, we can see that Jesus was uh, with his disciples and he told them that it would be difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them this because we've just had the experience of the rich young ruler. And you all remember the story of the ruler who thinks that he's kept all the commandments. And so Jesus tells him, then you need to go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And he goes away sad. He goes away sorrowful because he was very wealthy. And so Jesus tells his disciples in verse 23, assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's difficult for someone who has wealth because they're going to 
treasure their wealth. They're going to depend on it, rely on it. He says in verse 24, again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So there's a little miniature parable for you right there. Imagine a camel trying to crawl through the eye of a needle. It's not going to happen. That's what it's like for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible if he's relying on his riches and on his wealth. Now look at the the response that his disciples have in verse 25. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Why would they be astonished for Christ to tell them that it's difficult or hard or impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, because their system of religion, think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were not uh, priests, right? They were not of the tribe of Levi. They weren't priests. They were simply men who had dedicated themselves to the outward conformity to the, the laws, not only of the Old Testament, but all the ones that they had piled up on top of the Old Testament. Well, how could you have the luxury to do that, to pursue this works righteousness of doing, keeping all these little things, 600 and something laws that they had come up with? You had to be wealthy. You had to be wealthy in order to be a Pharisee, in order to pursue that lifestyle. And so it astonished the disciples because in their culture, they thought the Pharisees were the righteous ones. They were the ones who were keeping the minutia of the law that the rest of us don't have the time, the energy, or the money to keep. So if they can't get in, how is anybody going to get in? That's the reaction that the apostles are having. Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We're not saved by our own effort. We're saved by God. So then Peter, in verse 27, answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Peter said, We've we've given up everything for you, Jesus. We gave up our business. We gave up our family, our friends, our, our wives. Peter's married. That he's following Jesus around. I gave up everything for you. What kind of reward am I going to get? So Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus does assure the apostles that they do have a special place in the kingdom, that they, they do have uh, a certain preeminence in the kingdom. And then verse 29, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So when we come into the kingdom, all the worldly things we have to give up, including our family, we gain so much more by coming into the kingdoms, like the, the parables we looked at last week about the pearl of great price or the treasure hidden in the field. The kingdom is that valuable. But then in verse 30, he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, he says the same thing at the end of the parable. So the last will be first and the first last. Jesus' point here is that it's not the rich. It's not those who are connected in culture. It's not those who are able to follow all the outward trappings of the the religious ceremonies that they have. It's not even the apostles who will have a special place in the kingdom, according to Christ. But even they do not have that position in their own merit. 
They have no cause to boast. Uh, not, no one is treated unjustly. No one who attains to the kingdom uh, is given less than they deserve. We're all given more than we deserve. And, and though through God, uh, he rewards us by bringing us into the kingdom and gives us rewards as he sees fit, uh, not according to what we have merited or earned by our own efforts. Uh, and so our standing in the, in the kingdom, the point of this parable is that our standing in the kingdom of God is not based on wealth or ethnicity or social status or timing or whatever. It's purely based on the grace of God. If the apostles have a special place in the kingdom, it's because Christ graciously appointed them to that place, not because they earned it. They don't have the right to boast uh, about being apostles more so than other believers. And, and we see them sort of learn this lesson, don't we, over the course of time. Peter eventually just refers to himself as an elder in the church. He doesn't even assert his position as an apostle any longer. He's an elder, a co-elder with the other elders in the churches. The apostle Paul calls himself the least of all the apostles and the greatest of sinners. And so we kind of see even over the course of the apostle Paul's ministry that he goes from calling himself an apostle who was untimely born uh, to eventually he begins to call himself the least of all the apostles. Uh, he, he considers himself someone who has received the grace of God and by the end of his ministry, he's the greatest of sinners. So he, they, over the course of their lives and their walk with Christ, they, they begin to recognize more and more uh, how gracious God is to them and that they have nothing of which to boast. And so we also can learn this same lesson that if, if you're saved and your neighbor's not, it's not because you're better than your neighbor. It's the grace of God. That's it, pure and simple. You have nothing of which to boast. Uh, and so the kingdom is completely different than earthly kingdoms. The kingdom that they had expected to come in and political triumph didn't come that way. The, the kingdom that they're familiar with are based on this hierarchy of social status and wealth and all that. That's not how the kingdom of God operates. It's completely different than the kingdoms of this earth that they're familiar with. So let's turn to chapter 21 and look at probably two more parables and we'll be done here. In chapter 21, as Jesus is teaching, he, towards the middle of the end of the par uh, chapter here, uh, he tells two parables. Uh, but one begins in verse 28. Now, Jesus is uh, speaking here to uh, a group of chief priests and, and elders of the people. They've confronted him about his teaching, about his authority. And, and so he's asked them, he said, well, I will explain where my authority comes from uh, if you will tell me where the baptism of John came from. Was it from God or was it from men? And they refuse to answer the question because uh, they, they reason among themselves, it tells us in verse 25, that if we say it was from heaven, he's going to ask us, well, why didn't you believe John then? But if we say, well, it was from men, then we have to fear the multitude because the multitude thinks John is a prophet. So you can see their dilemma. They didn't believe John, uh, but they can't answer this question because either way they're going to be in trouble 
If they say, well, his authority was from heaven, then why didn't you believe? If they say he had no authority from God, it was just his own authority that came from men, uh, then the multitudes are going are to be upset with them because they viewed John to be a prophet. So now Jesus tells them this parable in verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go, work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of these two did the will of his father? So we have two sons, uh, and the the father has a vineyard that needs some work done. And so he comes, he tells one son to go work. And and the guy says, I'm not going to do that. I got other things to do, dad. And then later he goes, you know, I regret that I talked to my dad that way, that I just said, I'm going to go, I'm going to obey him. He goes to the vineyard and he works. The other son, though, says, oh, yeah, sure, Dad, I'll go work in the vineyard, but he never goes. He does his own thing all day. So which of the two sons actually did the will of the father? They said to him, the first, the one who said he wasn't going to, but then actually did obey. Jesus says to them, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe him. So Jesus tells this parable. Now the interesting thing is, is this parable um, that he's telling them is about words and actions. And it calls to mind a passage from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13 and 14. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men, therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. So the prophet here is speaking for God and saying that these people say that they honor me. Their words say that they're worshiping me, that they're, they're obeying me, but their hearts are far from me. They're not actually obeying me. They're not actually doing what their words said. And so God is going to uh, remove them from their station. The Pharisees, the chief priests, they're familiar with this passage. So when Jesus asked them, which of these two sons did the will of the Father? They know the right answer, the one who actually did it not just the one who said he was going to and then didn't do it. So they give the right answer, but I think that they think they're that first son. I think they think they're doing the will of the Father. But Jesus tells them, no, you're not doing the will of the Father. You're not uh, actually believing because, he said, John came to you and you didn't believe him. Then the common people, the sinners, did believe him and when you saw it, You didn't repent and believe. You refused to. And they still refused to, as was evident from the passage right before this parable. So what he's telling us here is that it's better, obviously, even the the chief priests were able to see this, it's better to actually obey than to say that you're going to and then not do it, right? Talk is cheap. Are you going to walk the walk? Words mean nothing if they're not followed by obedience. I mean, imagine if God said, I'm going to to forgive you. I'm going to make a way to forgive you. 
And then he never did it and never actually sent Christ, never actually accomplished redemption. It would be meaningless. But God doesn't do that. He keeps his word. So they learn, they've, they've seen the truth of this. It's better, right, to obey is better than sacrifice, as we see in the Old Testament in the case of Saul. Obedience is what God wants. But they thought they were doing the will of the Father, and Christ says they're not. And he says they're not doing the will because they didn't believe. In John chapter 9, or chapter 6, I'm sorry. John chapter 6, verse 29, uh, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes here, uh, and they, they asked him in verse 28, they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? So how do we do the will of God? How do we do the things God wants us to do? What are those things? Jesus answered in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. This is the work, to believe in Christ. John came and testified of the coming of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here is the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. The work of God, the will of God for us is to believe that. And the Pharisees, the the chief priests, refused to believe that message. And so they actually weren't doing the will of God. Uh, And so, you know, this parable is condemning uh, faithless religion, religion that would attempt to enter the kingdom on its own merits rather than by faith in Christ. Uh, So it's, it's in complete agreement with the previous parables that we've looked at. Well, then Jesus immediately tells them another parable here in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? So again, we have Jesus tell a parable and then ask a question, ask the, these priests to interpret the parable. Like, what, what, what do you think about this? So here's the parable that he's telling. And, and the interesting thing is, is that this, again, is one that should be intimately familiar to them. Look again at verse 33. Here, another parable. Here, so he's setting up the parable for them. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard, set a hedge about it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower. Now let me read to you Isaiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. O now inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? 
Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So, this is very similar to that passage in Isaiah there. Uh, a a land, landowner plants a vineyard, puts a hedge around it, digs a wine press in it. He's obviously telling this parable based on that passage in Isaiah, which was condemning Israel for not bearing fruit in keeping with the kingdom of God. So he tells this parable and says, here's the vineyard. The owner has sent his servants to collect the fruit of the vineyard and the people that he leased it out to beat, they kill, they stone. And so he sends them his son and they they see that this is the heir and they take him and kill him as well. And so he asks them, what do you think the vineyard the vine owner is going to do, the landowner is going to do when he comes. Well, if you're familiar with the passage in Isaiah, you know what he's going to do. He's going to tear this vineyard down. He's going to wreak havoc on these people who have disobeyed him. So they said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. So they get the answer right again. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So they got it. Like they realized he was talking about them. But see what he's doing. He's quoting uh, two passages here, uh, one from Isaiah 8.14 and referring to Daniel 2.44, which we looked at in the last couple of weeks, where Daniel tells King Nebuchadnezzar his dream of the, the golden image and the stone that comes and crushes and destroys the image. And that stone is Christ, the coming of the kingdom of Christ, and where he will destroy and rule over the kingdoms of this earth. So he's telling them, uh, you were these ones to whom the kingdom had been given, but you have not born fruit in keeping with the kingdom and so it will be taken from you and given to another given to a nation bearing the fruits of it well what does it mean uh, to bear the fruits of the kingdom well in other places in the new testament we're told to bear fruit in keeping with repentance this is repentance and belief this is exactly what he was talking about them with uh, to them in the previous parable uh, the parable of the two sons. They, they've not believed uh, John the Baptist, who was a prophet. They've not believed his message. They have 
not believed Christ and his message. They have refused to bear fruit in keeping with the kingdom. And so Christ, who is the foundation of the new kingdom, who is the stone who crushes all opposition, is going to destroy them and take the kingdom from them and give it to a nation that does bear fruit of repentance and belief. What is that nation? Well, it is the church. The church is the nation of God. And we're told this in multiple places in the New Testament. You are a kingdom of priests, a royal, a holy nation. Um, And so again, he is condemning faithless uh, religion, the faithless leaders, uh, the old covenant uh, and the, versus the new covenant. The old covenant was not the new covenant kingdom. The, the expected kingdom to come was not uh, the kingdom that, right? The kingdom that came was not the kingdom that they expected. It wasn't patterned on the old covenant, an actual political nation. It's this new spiritual kingdom that is coming. So uh, Jesus is refuting their ideas about the kingdom and what it would be like And I think we're going to stop there for tonight because it's 8 o'clock and maybe we'll do one more week on the parables. We've got a good one there in chapter 22 and a couple more in chapter 25 that we can conclude with before we move on in our study of the kingdom. But uh, I think the point is in these parables is the kingdom wasn't what they had expected it to be. It wasn't a political kingdom of this earth. It didn't come into the world in the way that he expected it. Entrance into the kingdom, uh, status in the kingdom was not what they had expected. It wasn't patterned after kingdoms of this world. It was different. Um, It's not by wealth or social status or our own efforts at works righteousness, but only by grace through faith that we come into the kingdom at all and that we have any good gift from God in the kingdom eternally. So let's close in a word of prayer.